Without further ado, though, I want to jump into here to Exodus 19 because I do want to read the whole chapter. So if you would, in your handout or in your Bible, read this with me. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people, the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very long trumpet blast, so that, the people of, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. That felt like the longest passage we've read all semester, but it's a good one because the Ten Commandments, I'm assuming, are familiar to most of you, Um, at least what they are or that they are in the Bible. But I wonder how many of you have ever read Exodus 19 
or spent much time dwelling on it as a preparation for reading and understanding the Ten Commandments. So tonight I want to see in looking mainly at Exodus 19, what happens in the lead up to the giving of the Ten Commandments. I want to see a story of law and order. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you may or may not have known, C.S. Lewis wrote actually a, uh, a fictional trilogy called the Space Trilogy. And the second of these books called Paralandra, it's a really interesting book where the main character has gone out into space and he's found himself on this planet called Paralandra. And it's the beginning of this planet. And he gets to witness the basically, the, the, they're called the king and queen of Paralandra. They're basically the Adam and Eve of this planet. The creator has just made this planet and just created these two humanoids or whatever. Uh, and so he gets to witness their beginning of life in this paradise. But he also gets to, to watch and witness, just like Genesis 3, this character that is evil incarnate trying to tip, tempt them. And I want you to hear this quote as evil incarnate in this book, what he says to the queen of Paralandra as he tries uh, to tempt her to break uh, the creator's command. He says, if this command were good, must the creator not have commanded it to all worlds alike? How could he not command what was good? But there is no good in it. He is showing you that this moment, through your own reason, it is mere command. It is forbidding for the mere sake of forbidding. But why? In order that you may break it. What other reason can there be? It's very artful and skillful and deceptive, is it not? It is mere forbidding for the sake of forbidding. Now, whether you realize it or not or would admit it or not, I think that is a brilliant case for how all of us naturally think about the law, whether religious or not, just this entity known as the law. But as it comes to the biblical law, we think of it right like, okay, we know the law is important because God gave it to us and God commanded it. But like beyond that, is there really much? Use for it? Like, is that, is that not just the main point? Is that because God said it? Because there's this general assumption, I think, that, that is uniform to all of us, uniform to all of history. There's this kind of natural inclination where we define life that if you do right, you're a good person. If you do wrong, you're a bad person. Now, in this day and age, we understand that people's definitions of right and wrong may differ. But we all kind of know whatever your definition of right or wrong is, if you do the right things, you're good. If you do the bad things, uh, if you do the wrong things, you're bad. But the the equation ends up calculating the same way. Here's a question for you as we launch into this. What if that natural inclination actually shows forth our heart's complete misunderstanding of God's law? This is an uncomfortable subject, I think, for some of us, because we're like, the law. Do I really want to spend 20-ish minutes thinking about the law? What if I told you, without the law, there is no gospel? What if I told you that? And what if I told you that has been the case since the beginning? That without the law, there is no gospel 
Now, to some of you, you're thinking, he might be going into a really large rabbit hole that I don't think I want to go with him. Follow me here. This is what God is going to make clear at Sinai for us, okay? Three things. First thing I want to show you, or tell you, what the law shows us. The law shows us, as God himself says, that we are a treasured possession. The law shows us that we are a treasured possession. Verse 5 there, treasured possession in the Hebrew actually is one word. You know, kings, it was a word used of kings. Kings, you know, are the most, in, in any kingdom, are, are the most wealthy person, individual in a kingdom, right? They own everything. They're the king. But kings would also have treasured possessions, these special things that they had special rooms and special vaults for that they could go in by themselves to enjoy or that they could take other people into that room or into that place to impress them. It was their treasured possessions. God says that we are his treasured possession, that his people in the context of the entire world are his treasured possession. Okay, but here's the key question. The key question that we have to deal with at the outset here, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And you're saying, we didn't really think about chicken and eggs. What is he talking about? The key question here is what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What's the chicken and egg in this story? Here it is. This is a story of law and order, not the television show, though you can feel free to do the bum bum in your head. Um, like Gracie did when I texted her yesterday. That was funny. Um, this is a story of law and order. And what I'm suggesting to you is that we have to get the order right. If you get the order wrong, you miss Christianity. Without the law, there is no gospel. But if you get the order wrong, you lose both. Okay? How does that happen? Well, the question is this. Does the law Give us the status of treasure possession. Look at verse four. Verse four comes before verse five, in case you were paying attention. Look at the tense of the verbs that God uses here. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice. So here's the point that I'm making. The entire scene at Mount Sinai, which is somewhat popular to those of us that grew up in the church. We, we remember the scene. We, know, we maybe remember the smoke and the fire and all these things. But you have to understand that what Exodus 19 shows us is that the entire scene at Mount Sinai is fully predicated, fully founded upon, does not happen Without first being founded upon what God has already done. The law makes no sense without understanding what God has already done. In other words, God, who does God give his law to? His people. It is not do this and then you might be my people. It is you are my people. Therefore, this is my law. The law was given to a redeemed people. So the law is not about attaining some status with God. It's about enjoying a status with God. It's about living into what is the reality between you and God based on what God has done for you. 
We cannot get that order wrong. You lose that order, you lose biblical Christianity, okay? How does the law show us to enjoy a relationship with God? Because if you're anything like me, that's not your natural understanding of the law, especially in the Old Testament, okay? How does the law show us how to enjoy a relationship with God? Because we are His treasured possession. And because we are His treasured possession, to obey Him is to please Him. To please Him is to know that He is pleased with you. And to know that He is pleased with you is to enjoy what you were made for, which is Him. And they all go together. Look, I'm a parent. I have four children. Uh, I don't do a great job of being a parent some of the time, a lot of the time, maybe. Um, but here's the thing that maybe comes natural to most of us, maybe not. No amount of obedience will make any of my children more of my children than they already are. Most of you would agree with that, right? No amount of obedience is ever going to make them more my child. And in a sense, because they are my children, no amount of disobedience is ever going to make them less my child, unless I decide to disown them. But that's another conversation. That was a joke and a bad one. Anyway, I'm glad you left. But my children's obedience, not because I always know what is right, but because I'm their father. My children's obedience does shape their enjoyment of living in a house with me. Right? Their obedience shapes their enjoyment of their relationship to me. It doesn't redefine it. It doesn't gain them anything. God's law does not redeem us. Nor does it ever pretend to. Nor does it ever offer to. But it shapes our enjoyment of this life and our enjoyment of God. Because the law is what he has given us and the law is what he desires. And disobedience, if we are truly his children, disobedience invites his displeasure. And inviting displeasure of this God is not a good thing. In other words, think about it this way. In other words, keeping God's law is good for you. You ever thought about it that way? Keeping God's law, it's not just because God said so. It's because it's what's right. Whether he said it or not, he says it because he knows that's how we work. He knows what's best for us to live and to flourish. If you break it, we saw this with Pharaoh, did we not? If you break his law, it does nothing but invite chaos and disorder and dysfunction and decay into your life. It eventually erodes and deadens your soul. There are some of you, no matter how short or long you've been in college, you already have more than enough examples of this, do you not? Whether because of your own choices, because of the effects of other people around you's choices and how they affected you. But positively, think about it. Keeping the law is life-giving and it is growing. A friend of mine talks about often about how he was... Um, prescribed earplugs for one of his ears uh, when he was eight years old and he hated it uh, because his his ear didn't drain well and so whenever he was going to take a bath take a shower go swimming go to the beach he had to wear the earplugs he hated them and so he decided they made him feel stupid um, and they he thought they made him look stupid so he decided he was not going to wear them and guess what happened he got ear infections without fail every time he didn't wear them And he uses that to talk about the fact that, you know, when I look back on that, I really did not like the earplugs because I thought the earplugs were holding me back. 
But what the earplugs actually did for me was free me, liberate me to actually enjoy water. Instead of inevitably waiting for the pain it was going to bring, uh, bring my head and my ears. The one who made you and made the world that you live in knows what is good for you. And he gives us, he gives his people his law as an invitation to enjoy him and to enjoy this life. It's nothing but positive. And in so doing, we are shown and we, are, and we know and we feel that we're his treasured possession. All right, these go together, but let's move on to the second one, what the law makes us. So the law shows us that we're a treasured possession, but it makes us, in verse 6, a kingdom of priests. It makes us a kingdom of priests. This image of kingdom of priests is used of God's people throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. I want you to look at verse 10 where God tells them, look, you need to go tell them they need to consecrate themselves. They need to wash their garments. And so what we're basically being shown already is that in order to meet and to have a relationship with this holy God requires holiness of the participant. To meet and have relationship with this God requires the holiness of the participant. And the law was the means to that end for the people of God. Look, we think when we hear the word holy, we have lots of word associations with the word holy. The most immediate thing most of us think about is morally pure. That we behave the right way, that we feel the right way, that we desire the right things, that we say the right things. And that's where we use it. And, and that's definitely part of it, but that's not all of it. The definition of holy is to be set apart to a task. In the Old Testament, the holy things were those things that were set apart, not just to be set apart, not just to be different, but set apart for a special, specific use. The holy vessels were those vessels, plates and bowls and cups that were to be used in the temple, in the worship of God. They weren't just set apart so they could be like, look at my holy vessel. Isn't it holy? That's not how holy is used in the Bible. It was for a use. And so I want you to think about this. If we're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if we're to be a people set apart, does that mean we're just supposed to be different? Because I'm, I'm willing to bet most of your youth ministries and youth conferences went this direction with holiness. You should be different. And guess what? If you are holy the way that our God defines holiness, you will be different. You will be. That's part of it. But it is not being different to be different. It's a purpose. It's to be, now hone in on this, a kingdom of priests. Now, what was a priest in the Old Testament? Well, there's a reason why in the Protestant tradition, we don't call people priests. Because in the Old Testament, a priest had a special role. When you would go to the tabernacle, which we'll look at next week, or the temple later on when they built Jerusalem, when you went to worship at the temple, you had to offer sacrifice. But you're not the one that offered the sacrifice. You gave it to the priest, the priest took it to the altar, and the priest offered the sacrifice. So the priest would take your sacrifice to God. Then the priest would come back to you and he would bestow on you God's pardon and God's blessing. So he would come back from God to you. So the priest went to God for you and he came to you for God. 
In other words, the role of a priest was a go-between to worship this God, to have a relationship with this holy God, a people who are not holy like we are. We have to have someone that goes between us, that stands in the gap, that intercedes. That's what a priest did. And now God is saying, look, because you are my people, because I've saved you, because you're my treasured possession, and because I'm going to set you apart, I'm going to set you apart to the task of being priests. To whom? The whole world. The whole world. A kingdom of priests among all the other kingdoms of the world. From the beginning, it was God's desire that His people would lead the whole world into knowledge of Him. It has always been that way. And so what I want you to see, if nothing else, maybe... When it comes to holiness in the Bible and holiness and being a follower of this God, it is not about cleaning yourself up. Be holy is not get your crap straight. I almost said another word. Um, I didn't have to admit that, but I did. Okay, repentance is good. Um, Holiness was never about fixing yourself up. God's people are to live in such a way that shows the world What God is like and what knowing God is like. God's people are to live in such a way that they show the world what God is like and what it's like to know God. And the law, which sums up for us, which gives us an explicit writing what God desires, is the means to that end. Obeying him, doing what he says, because what he says is right and holy unto the end of making us holy unto the end of us showing the world what God is like and what it's like to know God. So I want you to think about this. Is it any wonder then that Jesus, when he was asked to sum the entire law, did it the way that he did? If you remember this story, these people come to Jesus and they're trying to trick him. They're thinking, okay, we finally got the question that's finally going to nail him. All right, Jesus, you're so smart. Which one of the commandments is the greatest? Oh, we're going to get him now. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. They didn't ask him for two. They asked him for one. But he told them two because he was Jesus. (laughs) And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. As yourself. On these hang the entire law and the prophets. Did you know that Jesus was summing up the Ten Commandments in in that answer? Commandments one through four. How to love God. How to love God and worship God more than anything else. Because he's God. Commandments five through ten. Being to love each other. And others, as God has called us to. And in so doing those things, show what God is like and show what it's like to know God. I want you to imagine you've been out on a few dates with somebody and the time for the talk has come, right? Dun, dun, dun. There's where the law and order sound. I wish I had sound effects for my sermons. That'd be great. Boom, boom. Um, it's come time for the talk. And you're ready for it. Like you want the talk. The talk is here. But this is what the person says. Look, and you can fill in the blank with whatever. Look, I know you love going to the movies, but I think that's a complete waste of money. So not happening. Also, 
Look, I know you love sports, but I will never watch them and I'll probably die a little inside every time you do. You'll need marriage counseling for that one. Will that relationship last? Will that relationship make it past that conversation? Probably not. Right? Why? Now, look, those are two trivial things. But why? Because you cannot love someone without at least being willing to search and participate in the things that bring them joy. So let's tie these two together. Being a treasure possession and being a kingdom of priests is that we are invited to obey God One, because it is his law and because he is holy and he wants us to live as he created us to. But it's also an invitation to enjoy him, to pursue the things that bring him joy, that bring him pleasure so that we can have that same joy and pleasure. And in so doing, we show to the people around us the joy that it is that is in God and the joy that we have in knowing this God. They go together. Some of you, and this is is a generalization. I'm not going to take time to to get too specific. But some of you are attempting or have been attempting to live or you wish you could attempt. Maybe I'll put it that way. To live the Christian life with no effort towards seeking what it means to obey God in your life. Whether because you just don't see it as that important or you assume it's something you can figure out later. Whatever the reason may be, you give no thought to worshiping him as he's commanded us to. In commandments one through four and in various other places throughout the Bible. Why? Because you worship fun and you worship relaxing and you worship achievement And you worship success and you worship possessions and you worship alcohol and you worship sex. Because we worship other things, because we love other things more. And that's what we need to admit. And that's what the law is trying to keep us from. Some of you give no thought to loving others as God and as Jesus even more fully commands us to. In very offensive terms at times. How could Jesus expect me to do that? Why? Because we love ourselves. And we love doing what we want to do. And we love feeling how we want to feel. And we love having what we want to have. Some of you are absolutely bored with being a Christian. It's just boring you to death. And you maybe have even had a, had a crisis of like, man, in high school, like I was pretty sure what this thing was, but I just don't even know what it is anymore. Could it be because you've completely ignored what exactly God has called you to? Look, there's nothing easy about holiness. There's a reason that the people begin trembling at the foot of this mountain. Once they feel the full weight of what's going on. Holiness is hard. Holiness can hurt. Holiness is counterintuitive. Holiness, in a sense, is not as fun as sin. You know what? Waiting until you get married to have sex is not as fun as doing it whenever you want. 
Can we be honest about that? I think it's honest. But the invitation here is to listen to God and obey him because he knows what he's talking about. And he has a perfect and good and loving reason for giving it to us. Because it's an invitation to enjoy God, to enjoy being treasured, and to show the world what that's like. One of my best friends in Macon, he has a grown daughter. She's married now. Um, but one time he told me, he said, you know, me and, my, me and my daughter, he called her his little girl, but she's a grown woman. She said, me and my daughter, we still at least once a year watch the movie A Little Princess together. Which I immediately was like, I got to find this movie and watch it with my daughter. <laughs> um, and she doesn't like it. Anyway. Um, but that's not why I remember that. <laughs> you know why I remember him telling me that? I remember him telling me that because it made so much sense when you saw the way that she still looked at him, still listened to him, and how she still spoke to him. It made complete sense. And you knew that she knew that her father loved her. And you knew that the watching world around them knew He must be a loving father. I think that's what the law is, y'all. That is the invitation. That is what God is holding out to us. Not obey me because I want what I want. Obey me because I love you. I want what's good for you. I want you to live. I don't want you to die. We think of death, the wages of sin is death. We think that's God's threat. That's God's heartache. He doesn't want that for us. And so he calls us to himself to listen and to obey. Let's end with this one. What the law points us to, and it's as simple as this. The law points us to something greater than ourselves. And y'all, at the end of the day, that's what we need. The law points us to something greater. Did you notice here that just like the burning bush, there's a tension here? Think about the story this far. God has saved them. He's redeemed them. He's borne them on eagle's wings. And he has led them all the way to this mountain. And then he says, oh yeah, be careful. Don't touch my mountain or you'll die. And you're like, man, the Old Testament God just like cannot make up his mind, can he? Consecrate yourselves, make a boundary, don't touch the mountain, don't let your animals touch the mountain, don't go near a woman, don't have time to talk about that. Anyway, and then look at verse 8, where the people at first, they say, look, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Hallelujah, right? I want you, if you have your Bible, skip down to verse 18 of chapter 20. And you see, when they saw the thunder, when they saw the lightning, when they heard the trumpet, when they saw the smoke, smoke, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. It hit them. We can't do this. They go so far as to tell Moses, look, you talk to God. We can't hear him or we'll die. Now, whether that was true or not, I don't think it's the case. It's how terrified they were. Look over verses 10 through 19 in chapter 19. This is a spectacle to behold. The fire, the smoke, the thunder, the lightning. One thing is clear. 
about God bringing them to this mountain. He brings them to this mountain that he is on. And what they are immediately shown is the way up to me is barred. You can't come up here. They needed to know that no amount of self-preparation could ever satisfy the demands of his holiness or his law. Well, then what's the point, God? What did they need? Look at verse 9. Moses, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And that they may believe you forever. Interesting. Look at verses 16 through 20. Moses brought the people closer as the trumpet got louder. Moses spoke to God and God answered. The Lord called Moses to the top and Moses went up. Do you see the method to the madness? The people were going to leave this mountain knowing that the only reason that they could stand before this God was because of Moses. Not because of the law. They were there to receive the law, but that's not what gave them the standing. What gave them the standing was Moses. After this Moses, the people will believe you forever. And here we are, some three plus thousand years later, believing the words of Moses. They needed someone to stand in the gap. They needed an intercessor. They needed a go-between. I want you to listen to how the author of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews chapter 12 for Christians. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, Christian, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastual gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see, this is beautiful, that we as the people of God in Christ do not fear because we have come to another mountain. One where we enjoy the full and unbarred presence of God. And where do we enjoy it? In our very hearts. Without fear. Because Jesus' blood speaks a better word than anything else on this earth could. That's it. For so many of you, bring this in for a landing. For so many of you, you feel a lot of things. Maybe you're wrestling and struggling. You're just trying to persevere through life and even being a Christian. And you feel a lot of things. But the last one of them is holy. 
Some of you live constantly with that dark cloud, whether it's shame or regret. Some of you even hate the idea of holiness uh, because of what you, you think what it demands is unreasonable. And may I suggest it's because you've come to the mountain and you think what the mountain is telling you is get up here or die. And so you try again and again and again to trudge up that mountain on your own terms. You stare at the mountain and you tremble. You hear Jesus say things like, be holy as I am holy. And you say to yourself, why would Jesus demand something of me so unrealistic? He either never intended me to take him seriously or I'm a lost cause. Or that's a voice in your ear, but it's a crushing voice because all it does is serve to again and again and again and again show you just how much you keep screwing it up. And you're like, this does not sound like good news. This does not sound like joy. It doesn't sound like any of those positive words that Christians throw around. I found none of them to be true in my life. I want you to look back at verse 4. It's an interesting metaphor. How he bore them on eagles' wings. He lifted them up. He carried them away. He brought them to himself. This might be one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Lord of the Rings books. And the movie, I think, did it well as well. As the end of that trilogy, as Sam and Frodo, spoiler alert, lie on the side of Mount Doom as it is exploding and all seems to be coming to an end. And Tolkien writes this. And so it was that Gwahir, the eagle, saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes. As down the wild wind he came, and daring the great peril of the skies, he circled in the air two small dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand, upon a little hill, while the world shook under them, and gasped, and rivers of fire drew near. And even as he espied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall, worn out or choked with fumes and heat, or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay, And down swept Quahir, and in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away, out of the darkness and out of the fire. Maybe you would never admit this to anyone, but you wish that was you. And what if all the way back here in the Bible... It was already true. That has got to at least be a story that you think to yourself, I think I need to look a little bit more into that. Wouldn't you please? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we need your law. We need to be made right. We need to be holy. Because, Father, we need to be made whole. That's precisely what you've offered of us and declared for us and accomplished for us in Jesus. Would we hear that story tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.